Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. William Ralph Inga says this, Whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. This quote gives us much to think about, perhaps most of all, that we need to be careful about what we cling to as our source of life and identity. To receive the best of life, we must be willing to obey when Jesus commands us to get up, pick up your mat, and walk. We must also be willing to endure uh, being put to trial by those who are offended by Jesus. And that's what we find in our story today. Let's go to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic has been called Bethesda, and is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been there in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, "My father is always at his work to do this. It, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working." For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So as we look at this text today, I want to talk about two big ideas. And the first one is this. To receive the best of life, you must be willing to get up when Jesus commands you. So John sets the table for us, describing a scene in which Jesus travels to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. We're not told which festival it is, but it helps us to remember this, that festivals were an act of obedience. Israel was obeying the command of God found in Leviticus 23. There was a series of festivals that are laid out there. And whenever they followed these festivals, they were obeying God. Secondly, festivals were a time of remembering who Israel was and what it meant to be the people of God. It was a time to remember. And thirdly, to remember about festivals is this. Festivals were times when Israel would specially look for God to make himself known. They were on high alert for God to do something big. And yet for all the high alert that they're on, they miss Jesus. 
While Jesus is in Jerusalem for the festival, he spends some time by a pool called Bethesda. The Sheep Gate is where that's nearby, and it's somewhere in the northeastern quarter of Jerusalem. We're not entirely sure where it is, but the Pool of Bethesda had become known as a place of healing. Just how often or how many people were healed there is unknown. What John tells us is that a great number of people used to wait by the pool. The group was so large that history tells us that the pool was expanded. A second pool was dug out next to it, and colonnades were built around these two pools that were joined into one. And, and so uh, you had these colonnades, these covered porches around the pools. Uh, there are four walls of these colonnades and then a divider between the two pools. And that's why we see John describing it as a, a pool with five colonnades around it. So four walls and then one down the middle separating the two pools. This is a scene that's described by John. Now you may have noticed, and I, this is going to be a little touchy for some of us, but we, we got to address this. You may have noticed that some of your translations leave out verse 4. In fact, almost all the translations do. Some don't, but most of them do. The King James Version and the New King James Version include this verse directly in the text. Most other translations either move verse 4 to the footnotes to the side, or they mark it in a very special way so that it's very clear that something different is happening here. Um, and basically that something different is in some of the earliest copies of the Gospel of John that we have, verse 4 just simply isn't there. Now, for some of you, this is upsetting to hear about. Please know that regardless of the translation you're reading, the translators had to, all the translators, for whatever translation you're reading, had to wrestle with how to best indicate the nature of verse 4. Some left it in with no notation, saying, hey, we're just going to leave it there. Some said, hey, we're going to put special markings around this verse to get your attention and get you to think a little bit more about this particular verse. And some translators moved it off into the footnotes. This is not done to deceive or to influence your reading of the Bible, but instead to try to accurately portray the Word of God and the process that translators go through in producing an accurate translation of God's word for you and me. They're not translating it from English into English. They're taking it from Greek and Hebrew into English, and that's a difficult process, and, and they take it very seriously. So, any lesson to be taken from this? Well, first, read your footnotes. There's a wealth of information in the footnotes of your Bible that the translators want you to know about, and they want you to know about why a particular translation reads a certain way. It's, it's, they want you to have a better understanding of God's word. They're not trying to hide things. But I want to talk about this verse 4. What does that verse 4 say? Because I didn't read it at the beginning of this message. And it says this about those who were sitting around those colonnades around the pool of Bethesda. It says, And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. First one into the pool, the first one who got into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. God, for whatever reason, was healing people in this way at this pool. I imagine there's a lot of us today that wish there was a pool like that. But here's the rub. We don't need a pool where the angel stirs the waters. We have Jesus. We have God the Father. We have the Holy Spirit. And this is the danger that we see in a passage, in, in a situation like this. 
you can fix your eyes on the pool instead of on God. You can fix your eyes on yourself and your struggle instead of on God. And this is what happened to a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. But then Jesus showed up. Now, we're not told uh, how old this man is. He may be 38 years old. He may be 60 years old for all we know. We're not told if this is a condition that he had from birth or even what being an invalid means. Some people read this and, and liken him to a class of people who could not use their legs. That seems plausible, uh, and that this type of person, this man, could only pull himself along by his hands, and this would result in, if you want the visual of, of a man, not just a man who couldn't walk, but a man who had disfigured, torn up hands because he transported himself by pulling himself on his hands all the time. Uh, this type of person actually was a class for this type of person. It was underneath of the poorest of the poor, uh, very uh, low on the totem pole and very, uh, very much uh, an outcast in society. Well, that's what's suspected about the man. But what do we really know? Well, the text tells us he was an invalid for 38 years. It tells us he cannot move quickly under his own strength because he can't get into the pool before others do. We're told that he's now at the Pool of Bethesda. We're not sure how long he's been there. And we're told, or at least it's implied, that he wants healing. He wants healing here, but he cannot get into the pool before others. And there's no one to help him. And I'll tell you this. From reading this text, this man has placed his hopes and his dreams and his frustrations in the Pool of Bethesda and its healing power. How do I know this last part? Because Jesus approaches this man and asks him the most important question he's ever been asked. In verse 6, Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? Now that's uncertainly true. That's not a new question to this man. But now it is the most important question he's ever been asked. This is a question I am sure that this man, this invalid, has thought about for 38 years. It's a question that others have wanted for him and have asked of him, do you want to get well? I imagine it's a question he asks often, but after 38 years, I bet you he doesn't ask it every day, or at least not seriously. I imagine there are days when he gets up and says, do you want to get well? Well, I'll just be like any other day. I'll be unable to walk, unable to get around and take care of myself at the end of this day like all the others. I think many of us who have lived with a struggle for so long that we get used to that struggle like it's some sort of ugly company. We hate it, and yet it is part of home. It's part of what we call normal. Don't ever get so used to your struggle that you decide to stay there, that you would prefer its company. I believe that there are people who kick and scream about a struggle in their life, but at the same time that they kick and scream, they also say in their heart, well, and this is just how it is and it will never change and it's who I am. I want out, but this is always how it will be. And Jesus asks, do you want to get well? And what makes this question the most important question in this man's life is not that it's a question, do you want to get well? It's the person who asks it, Jesus. And that's what this man does not understand yet. Yes, he wants to get well, but he betrays his faith. He does not know Jesus, and I'm sure, I'm not even sure this man knows God. He knew he knows the pool of Bethesda. He may say, I know that God works here, but if he really knew God, he would not pin his hopes and his dreams on a wave pool. 
Do you want to get well? Instead of a simple yes, the man lays out his problem. Well, no one will help me into the pool when the water is stirred and, and someone, else, always else, someone else always gets in ahead of me. This man speaks of faith in a pool, not in the God of heaven. This man speaks about his grievances, not about getting healed. And I want to point out that Jesus ignores what this man has to say. Think about it for a minute. This man lays out his problem and Jesus doesn't even address any of the issues. Uh, I have nobody help me get into the pool and someone else always gets in ahead of me. And Jesus just, he, he, could, he ignores that. It's as though Jesus could care less about the pool. He could care less that there's no one there to help this man into the pool. He could care less that someone else always seems to get into the pool first. Jesus is not concerned about this man's grievances. He is concerned about healing this man. He wants to know if this man wants to be well. And that's something we need to realize. Sometimes we care more about our grievances than about getting a true touch from God. Jesus is not willing to let this invalid, this man, set the terms of the problem. And I think we all too often set the terms of our own problems with God and with others. We'll say, well, you want to know what's wrong in my life? Well, and what it would take to fix it? Well, let me tell you. And we just have this laundry list that we pour out. Sometimes your grievances have nothing to do with your healing. Sometimes we are more concerned about looking back at the past instead of letting God do something new right now. Can you imagine Jesus standing right in front of you asking you, if you want to get well, what would you say? Now, some of you are listening to this message and you're needing a healing touch from God. You have a laundry list of what is wrong. Would you be willing, would you be willing to let God heal you on his terms? We often want God to heal our symptoms instead of our sickness. This man's sickness, it was his sin. That's the real thing. It's not that he can't move, that he's an invalid. It's that he has sin in his life. We find that out at the end of the passage. And I'm not sure that he ever let Jesus heal him of his sin. For now, it's enough for us to know that Jesus heals this man physically. He does. Jesus does not decide to be a good neighbor and help him into the pool. I think a lot of Christians today would see a man like this and go, okay, we'll figure out how to get you in the pool. Jesus... He's not just a good neighbor here. He is the good shepherd here. He is the Messiah. And he offers a command to the man to get up. Get up. And at this moment, the man has to decide if there is another way to heal than the pool. And fortunately, he makes that decision. He gets up and he carries his mat. Are you willing or are you unwilling to let God heal you in this way? and in his way, instead of the way that you think is best. Ah, let me say that again. Are you willing to let God heal you in his way, instead of the way that you think is best? Maybe another question to pose to you is, what is it that you want from God? A lot of us have our struggles with God. A lot of us have struggles in life. And perhaps the question we need to ask and be honest about is, what is it that you want from God? Some of us, all we really want, when we list our laundry list of, of things that need to be fixed, what we are really looking for God from, from God is we want sympathy, we want affirmation, we want verification of our struggles, we want to get our way from God. I mean, God, I want you to do this in my life, but it has to be done my way, not your way. Or... 
Do you want God to be God? Are you willing to let God be God and let God do as he sees fit? That is when real healing, real transformation will come about in your life. Now, the story tells us that there's another group of people that desperately need healing, and they don't even know it. Verse 10 speaks of the Jewish leaders or the Jewish people. This man was healed on the Sabbath, this invalid. A day of rest and a day of no work. And they are upset, these Jewish leaders. As one commentator put it, they are the self-appointed Sabbath law enforcers. They are upset because this man is carrying his bed, a mat, on the Sabbath. While this is not prohibited in the Bible, it is prohibited in their interpretation about how to follow the command to keep the Sabbath. These leaders are sick. They are sick. They are unwell. And they don't even know it. How do I know that they're sick? These leaders are more upset that this man is carrying his mat on the Sabbath than they are excited that after 38 years of affliction, this man is now healed. They are unwilling to do what the festivals of Israel are designed to do, which is to look for God to show up. I think there's a lot of Christians walking around today who are spiritually sick. They're more concerned about defending what they think is right than what God's word says is right. Oh, oh okay. Did, do I dare even use this illustration? Well, I dare. Um, get mad at me if you will, but I saw this as a joke earlier this week, and I thought, wow, that that's pretty convicting. It's a fake article, a fake a joke article from what's called the Babylon Bee, and the first line read like this. Are you ready? A new report performed by a coalition of Christian theologians confirmed Monday what many have already suspected, that the nation's Democrats and Republicans are more divided than ever before over exactly how the Bible should be misinterpreted, misapplied, and misused to support their own political agenda. Ouch! That sort of joke stings a bit, doesn't it? Especially when you're worried about which way the country is heading. But each one of us faces the temptation of telling God who he is, what he needs to fix, and who the problem is. Just like those Jewish leaders. We are not as correct as we think we are. Just saying. God is the one who has the market on truth. The invalid man thought the solution was in the pool. And the Jewish leaders, they thought the solution was in legalism disguised as holiness. The invalid man and the leaders could actually find their solution by simply saying yes to Jesus. And saying yes to Jesus means that you're giving him your will and your way. For this man being healed might have been scarier than staying sick. He knew how to be an invalid trying to get into the pool. Being healed carried with it responsibilities. Now he'd have to contribute to the community instead of get help from the community. Now he would have to give God glory instead of give God his grievances. And now he would have to continue to let Jesus be his Lord. And I'm not so sure he did that. Do you want to get well? Saying yes has a price. And you need to weigh this price. When you follow Jesus' command to get up, you open yourselves to the miracles and the marvels of God, but you also stand under the judgment of this world. And that comes to the second big idea that I want to talk about today. To receive the best in life, you must be willing to share in the trial of Jesus. 
This man, invalid man, once healed, I wish he had given him a name because it's so hard to say over and over, the invalid man, but this man, once healed, he fails a test. That's as far as we know. And I'll, I'll point out what that test is here in a moment. When the teachers of the law find out that someone healed this man and told him to carry the mat on the Sabbath, they want to know just who this healer is. And the man, the, the man who's healed, he doesn't know. And Jesus, in typical fashion, he just disappears for a while into the crowd. So the man doesn't have an answer to these leaders. He's feeling the pressure from them. Later, the man is in the temple. Perhaps he's giving glory to God. That's a wonderful thing to do. And Jesus approaches him and says, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Jesus ties this man's sin to his physical struggle. Now, this is not the case for everyone, but it is the case for this man. And now he must choose. Admittedly, we do not have an entirely clear answer. But the man does something interesting if he chooses his sin or not. He does something interesting. He betrays Jesus. That is to say, as soon as he finds out that it was Jesus who healed him, he reports this to the Jewish leaders. He doesn't defend Jesus to the Jewish leaders. He just reports his name, and the leaders respond by questioning Jesus. And then they want to look for a reason to kill him. They put Jesus on trial. Perhaps it's not a formal trial, but the leaders want to know who this Jesus is and the desire to have him executed. This invalid man must also decide who Jesus is. And when challenged by the powers that be about Jesus, this man does not defend Jesus, but turns in all the information he has on him. Gary Burge, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says this, John's Gospel places Jesus on trial, not simply at the end of his life, as in the, as in the synoptics, but rather continually. Judicial settings appear in John with surprising frequency. Surprising frequency. Jesus is examined by Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and the Jewish leaders. You can find it in chapter 5, and chapter 6, and chapter 8, and chapter 9. And Jesus must produce witnesses for his case. Often John the Baptist, God the Father, the followers that he has, healed people. And, and, and he produces evidence that may substantiate his claims. Um, particularly, we can read about this in this chapter, chapter 5, verse 36, where Jesus says, The very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. He's giving testimony. Above all, Gary Burge continues, as the final scenes of the gospel, in the final scenes of the gospel, Jesus appears before Pilate and the high priest in a climactic judicial sequence in which he is found innocent, but nevertheless is killed. We often think of the trial at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, but Jesus is on trial throughout his whole ministry, and it is the same for those who would follow Jesus. Every time we live as Jesus commands, non-Christians will look at us and put us on trial. Perhaps you're feeling that right now, and I don't have a solution on how to ease the trial. Just know that it comes hand in hand with following Jesus. I do know this. The higher your claims are about Jesus, the fiercer the trial will be. That is to say this, if you claim that Jesus is here, if your claim about Jesus is that he is here to bring compassion, to be your friend, to make you feel good, then you're not going to face much of a trial. But if you claim that Jesus is God and he has come to hold us under judgment for our sins, that Jesus is holy and unholiness has no place in his presence, you might run into a tougher trial with the, those ideas. If you say Jesus is a way to heaven, 
instead of Jesus is the way to heaven, which he is the only way to heaven. Those statements determine a different level of ferocity in the trial. If you proclaim boldly Bible texts like Matthew 7, 13 through 14, which says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and men, many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. If you hold the text like that, you will fi face a harder trial. We live in fierce times, and they will get fiercer. We are not called to be a silent people, but we are to be witnesses who boldly proclaim Jesus. As Acts 1.8 tells us, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. We are to speak about who Jesus is and speak boldly, strongly, and deeply about who Jesus is. I do not say this to discourage you or dissuade you, but to help you realize that if you want all that God has for you, if you want the best in life, then you must be willing to say yes to Jesus and no to yourself, and you must be willing to endure trials like Jesus has endured trials. Gary Burge finishes his thoughts, uh, coming back to him here about being put on trial with Jesus. It says this, but there's an ironic twist here because in the end, it is not Jesus who is on trial. The world is on trial. Even though Jesus is clear that he is not judging the world, still the entry of the light into the world exposes the darkness and judges it for what it is. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Each time you feel the pressure of examination from those who dislike that you follow Jesus, know that you're not really on trial. They are. Do not lose heart. Keep strong in your faith. If you really want all that life has to offer, you have to be willing to get up when Jesus commands it. Be a person who says yes to Jesus. Be a person who's willing to let go of grievances so that you can receive the healing touch of Jesus. If you really want all that life has to offer, you must be willing to share in the trial of Jesus. Be stalwart in your faith when others are mad at you or are offended by Jesus or offended by God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, today I know that you, I know that there are those out there that have been living with an ailment, a struggle, whether it's physical, mental, social, or spiritual. Lord, touch that person. And Lord, help us to say yes to you and your way. And help us to relinquish our grievances and to grab a hold of you. Help us to remain faithful when we feel pressure from the people who reject Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go with Jesus.